Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hi. John Epperson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I missed last week. Luke, did you get a chance to introduce yourself? I did. I am uh, been working in Ruby for about 10 years uh, in various different e-commerce and uh, retail projects. Recently started working in the world of aerospace, which doesn't have a lot of Ruby going on, but we're managing to fit a lot in. Cool. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com well, we decided to uh, jump in and talk about what we're working on these days. So, John, it sounds like you've got some stuff going on. Do you want to start us off? Yeah. The most interesting thing going on in my life is that I am currently a mobile developer. <laughs> we do have a Ruby <laughs> nice. backend, but I decided to go full-time freelancing with my company. I made the decision a little more than a year ago, and I made the plunge eight, nine months ago, I think. And then uh, the first client that we picked up, somebody here in town contacted me and they're like, hey, do you do React Native? And I'm like, no, but you know, I needed a client. And I was like, uh, you know, I've done React before. I, w- I was totally upfront and honest. I was like, I've never done React Native. I've done React, done a bunch of React, pasted on the Rails apps for a long time now. I could probably figure it out. And this guy was like, I think you'd be perfect for this project. And I'm like, I don't know why you think that I'd be perfect for this project, but well. Whatever. So after like a month and a half of bidding with this client, I landed them. And then I get the code. And first day I get the code, I'm like, sweet, they have a Rails backend. So I had no idea the ah. whole time I was bidding that there was any Rails involved with this. But uh, yeah, so they're just, uh, it's a landlord here in town that offers like coupons and things to like tenants that work in their buildings to other you know places in their buildings and they just wanted to turn it into an app so cool how different is react native to react it's a bit like someone saying well you know i've never done any javascript but i've done some java uh, it must be more similar <laughs> than that it is way more similar than that there is react code in here the thing that's weird okay so i've been doing this all caveats right like i've been doing this for like since december so that's what three-ish months now a little over the thing that I have picked up along the way is that almost all React Native apps, they're all like, hey, you'll be writing in React and we're going to convert that into native iOS and Android <laughs> for you. And oh, I sorry, think like, sorry. yeah, no, you're fine. I, I'd be laughing too if somebody was telling me this story at this point. But I think like basically 90% of React Native apps have to be what's called ejected, which basically means that you have a React app or a React code base, an iOS code base, and an Android code base. And you have to care for all three of them. Yeah. Yep. This is sounding very familiar. We have a React Native podcast. And lately, I've kind of been uh, helping carry that show. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes we have people who come on and they're like, well, I built this for React. And it turned out it worked great for React Native. And most of the time, we get, I built this for React. And then I had to go and I had to figure out how to make it work for React Native because it's not the same. 
<laughs> Look, I mean, I am writing React code, right? Like when I'm doing the React part of it. But I think like, shoot, 70% of my work is not in the React yeah. code. I mean, even the people that I talk to where it's pretty much, you know, 100% React native, you don't have to go write any native extensions or do anything extra. Sort of the way that you think about components and you organize uh, some of that stuff is similar. And, you know, some of the backend JavaScript stuff is going to be similar. But there are enough concerns that are different to where I don't know that I've met anybody who could share more than half their code across React and React Native. And even then, yeah, it's pretty easy to go down a path where you're going to have to figure out either how to do something differently so it'll work on Android or work on iOS. Yeah, so anyway, it's it's really, really interesting to just see where this goes. How much yeah. effort has it been to kind of differentiate between uh, iOS and Android? I presume you have a separate build process for each. Yeah, so the build process is different. So one of the things that really frustrated me jumping into this, coming from the Ruby world, is to me, this ecosystem just feels like it's the most brittle thing I've ever encountered. Like I've never encountered an ecosystem where they just sort of accept that Okay, for an iOS build, maybe I have to like build it like five times and it's going to like work one of those five times, right? Like it just fails four times and I'm just supposed to keep rebuilding it and that's sort of okay. And when I look up online, that's what it's like everyone's just like rebuild it, just try rebuilding and see if that works. I don't know that that happens all the time and after a lot of work and effort, I got rid of some of the libraries that were causing that. So now my build is back to building first time every time. It was also, it was super mysterious. It clearly, I mean, it was dependencies underneath, but, mm. but there seems to be a lot of that going on. There's also a lot of, there's a lot of manual changing of values in order to make your build work. And of course, I'm super like into DevOps and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to write some stuff. So there's a cool tool out there called Fastlane. I wrote like a, basically a bunch of, it's basically a bunch of scripts for Fastlane in order to handle like different pieces of the build so that I can now only run three commands to get my build done, you know. Yeah, it, that's the life, I guess. And then I have to wait while my machine is like tied up for 2 hours as it's like building this build. Yep. That's that's quite a build time. It's a lot longer than Ruby, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading uh, a post by a guy who was doing, he must have been building an operating system or something, but he had a 96 core, 96 core Windows PC, and he was attempting to spin up a big uh, parallel compile. And the thing was sitting there for a minute before starting because uh, there was some kind of ON squared condition in Windows when launching the build processes. So it would just sit for 60 seconds while spinning up the build. Yeah, it's been different. I've, I've been doing Ruby so long. It's uh, been a really long time since I've had to do something that's like, you know, front heavy. Yeah, I've, I've heard a few people that have made the transition to either front end or mobile. And yeah, it's definitely a different world. But it's, I mean, it's, it's all interesting stuff. And if you're going to create a custom front end, you know, people talk about doing these uh, spas. I, I think a spa done right is essentially React Native, right? It's a mobile app. Otherwise, it's, you know, unless you're on a high latency connection where the refresh is just painful, you can make the spa perform in a way that makes sense, which is hard. Yeah, I, I like the direction you're going in there. A spa is a single page application, right? Yes. 
I'd never heard it said out loud. Oh, I have. We have a JavaScript podcast too, so. My town is really big into JavaScript, so I've also heard yep. it. But yeah, not outside of the JavaScript world do I really hear people saying the word out loud. Yeah. Any other projects that you're working on there, John, or should we let Luke chime in? I mean, I shoot, I have I have tons of cool things going on, but I think it's Luke's turn. Time for one of my code disasters. So code uh, disasters. Yeah, this week's code disaster took over a project which was a simple business to business API. It's kind of one business talking to another to automate manufacturing. So really simple. Sinatra app. What could go wrong? Well, this had some financial reporting. So the uh, one business was placing orders through the API. The uh, system was keeping track of them. And then every month it creates an invoice. And that invoice gets created using uh, the XLSV gem, downloaded, and away we go. A business is picking up, which is really good. So they get me in to kind of make a few changes, make the reports easier to consolidate because they outsourced uh, some of the, um, uh, what do you call it, accounting. And uh, numbers don't add up. I don't like dealing with financial data because I find that high-stress data. If someone kind of, <laughs> you know, if, if, it's, if, it's, uh, if it's an order or something or a process or a, or a photo, you know, within reason, that's kind of okay to get wrong and you can usually get it back. But financial data can be a, a complete can of worms. Luckily, never had to really deal with things like payment gateways. And when I have, they've been using a, a system like Stripe or PayPal, where a lot of that's offloaded. But yeah, the, the high stress world of financial reporting, rebuilding a client's confidence after mistakes are found. Yeah, I, I do actually feel you there. I did that at an old job. They had actually, before I even got there, they kind of homegrown their own uh, general ledger and all their reports. Just, just oh, gigantic no. ERP system. Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> I actually still take care of this client today. They're actually a client of business. Uh, because I worked there for a while. They were a manufacturing company. They made things. They actually made mostly dirt. They bagged dirt. That was their big thing. It's <laughs> a <laughs> so thing, you know. You, Is it, you, isn't that a Bill Hicks sketch? Somebody has to make it. Uh, I mean, somebody has to put it in a bag, I guess, right? That is the thing. Um, and that's what they did. Anyway, so, you know, they... Uh, is, it, is it called Land of Land? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> shoot, like I learned a lot about manufacturing at that time. Like they, they sold the same dirt under like a million different labels. And then we would go down, I would go down to the Lowe's and I'd be like, oh, that's, that's one of the products that my company, you know, bags right there, you know, so... <laughs> Grass seed nice. was, was another That's thing. That's pretty cool. Did, but, but anyway, so at the end of the day, they did all this stuff. They made these things and uh, they didn't know how much each of their widgets cost them to make because they had never like counted in the cost of like shipping it out to a store or like all these things. So anyway, so we get there. I spent this entire year like working to add all these costs in and I pulled the report for the first time and they're clearly not making money on any of their widgets. It was it was a pretty terrifying thing when we pulled this for the first time. They they were like basically losing money on everything. But that was one of the reasons why I left that company. Actually, people shoot the messenger. This is the problem we're having. There's a, there's a, you can't help but shoot the messenger. It's a human reaction. It's hard. So yeah. that was obviously some kind of custom API, right? It was a custom built. Now they they bore, they never splurged for any sort of like ad hoc reporting so we made all the reports for them so that was just a 
me writing a query to pull a report. But, you know, the whole point is that when you're dealing with financial data, you often have all these stumbles across the way and then, you know, stuff is wrong. It can take you a long time to get where you want to go. And I totally feel you're rebuilding trust in the client after you pull a query and they're like, huh, something seems wrong here. And you have to go digging, figure out whether it was you or whether they put bad data in because at first you don't know the answer. We're going we're gonna to sort out, but I wonder if you could help me out. One of the challenges I've got is these guys set up a custom API between them, right? It's just a simple JSON API, but completely undocumented. And part of confusion came where one side was sending data to the API, which they thought would be used for financial reporting, but the other side was using something different. So in 2020, how do you document your APIs? Is everyone using Swagger still? I have never ended up using Swagger. I know what it is, and I know some people use it. I could have sworn that I saw something a while back. Yeah, Swagger's been renamed OpenAPI. Yeah, the OpenAPI uh, 3, sorry, is the, yeah. is the, the latest one, yeah. Yeah, yeah we did an was... episode on it on JavaScript Jabber, so... Is there a more Ruby-oriented one? I could have sworn that there was one. There's API Pi, but I thought I thought there was something else. I don't know. I might have to like look for this like at a separate time. But I could have. I was uh, working with uh, Mentee, I think like a few months ago when we were looking at this, mm-hmm. and I could have sworn that we found something that looked really promising. I had no project to use it on at the time, though. Well, the game plan is to swag it out because that's um, yeah. It looks really easy. It just seems to be a YAML file. Like I said, it's not going to be a question of design. It's just going to be really used as a kind of means of communication between me and the other developers. But if there is a better tool, I'd, I'd love to know about it. So tangentially here. So one of the things that I, I'm commonly telling people is that I feel like a large portion of my job is, is not actually coding in any way. It's helping different people communicate with each other. This oh, sounds boy. like exactly one of those problems. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that it'll make or break your career. If you're not a good communicator, it makes it really hard past a certain point to get hired as a senior developer. Uh, getting getting drawn into the project management black hole. Okay, fair. Yep. We're. I feel like as developers, though, I I feel like in the end, as much as we sort of like hate the project management black hole, I think as as a general rule, we also I think as a general rule, hate more that the people that are in project management roles <sighs> just frustrate us because they don't know what's up, I feel like. Yeah, but if if that's the situation you're in, I still maintain that you still bear responsibility for the success of the project. And so if there's a communication barrier, you have a responsibility to work to rectify it. I mean, obviously, there's going to be somebody else you have to communicate with, but... You know, and and they have some responsibility too, but you know, you you need to stand up and and make it happen. So I don't disagree with you at all. Um, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I mean, right? Like, yeah, whether we like it or not, I think we often end up sort of being like the uh, caretakers of language and terms uh-huh. and mm. all of these aspects of communication. I was actually given the task at one point of training a project manager as a developer, right? Like they were like, hey, this project manager is a little weak. We want to give this project manager practice. We're going to pair him up with you, right? 
And Mm -hmm. that was, it was interesting. Yeah. I had a similar experience when I was working in Japan. I was working in a very traditional manufacturing company and uh, they wanted to do some web stuff. So I thought, yeah, I can do some web stuff. Let's use Ruby because, you know, the the manuals are Uh available in Japanese. They've never heard of it. So (laughs) I had to, uh, yeah. Uh, Well, it it was a predominantly Windows-based business mainly manufacturing. So yeah, they hadn't, they, they hadn't done um, anything web-related and that's how most people are hitting Ruby, right? Yeah, this is fair. So I uh, had to kind of onboard people to Ruby in a different language, which was great because I could say, well, listen, this, all the books are available in Japanese, so you don't have to learn English. So that's kind of really lowered the bar to entry. But then you kind of had to explain, I don't know, things like instance variables. Yeah, explaining abstract concepts seems difficult. Mm, So uh, one one way I kind of really helped me in Ruby was the kind of enormous flexibility. So I kind of created a little um, DSL and we put all of the business logic in that. So the project managers had their own file and they didn't really learn to program. They learned to reprogram that file much in the kind of similar way that, you know, kind of Cucumber does and you can kind of make it more verbose, more conversational. So that's kind of really fat, you know. If I if I had to do that in C sharp, that would have been far far more unpleasant. That's fair, but you. It also sounds like you got buy-in and stuff too, which I feel like is the actual hardest task of that. What I what I tell people, what people never believe, is the speed of development in Ruby. I always say, listen, you know, you can do this in Python, but you know, I can have it done in Ruby in five days versus you know, whatever yep. you've been quoted. And people never believe it. And for that project, it, like I said, it, it wasn't a particularly, you know, software-oriented business. Software was seen as a kind of something they needed, not something they specialized in. And uh, I said to them, listen, we, we, we can do this in the time frame. You know, this was kind of a Christmas launch e-commerce situation. And I said, no, 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 you know, it'll, it'll get done. Even though, as I said, they weren't familiar to the world of it. It was a really great opportunity to kind of evangelize what the language can do and hugely, hugely successful. But people don't realize the speed and it's really hard to communicate speed of development to people who've never used it. Sure. And they also get barraged by every other thing out there that's like, oh, you can do all this really fast. And you're like, if you haven't used Ruby before, like it's really, I mean, it's just a perspective difference. Like the time how productive I am in Ruby versus everything else is is not really comparable most of the time. The thing that beats me up, well, there are some things that Ruby isn't the most awesome at. That's okay. Yeah, then you do those things in something else. Yeah, like React Native mobile apps. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you cry yourself to sleep at night. <laughs> I like React Native, but yeah. Have you thought about learning how to build machine learning apps? Springboard offers a machine learning engineering career track that's similar to online machine learning boot camps with the difference that it follows a project-based learning methodology where students work towards creating their own portfolio of machine learning models. Every student is paired with a machine learning expert who provides unlimited mentorship and support throughout the program via video conferences. Most students who take Springboard's machine learning engineering career track Take it because they want to learn how to build machine learning algorithms. They want hands-on experience in deploying machine learning models into production. They want to learn how to build and deploy deep learning prototypes. 
Springboard offers a job guarantee on all their career tracks. That means that you don't have to pay for the program until you get a job in the machine learning engineering space. Ruby Rogues is exclusively offering a scholarship of $500 to eligible applicants. Make sure you use the code AISpringboard when you enroll. There are only 20 scholarships available for students who enroll. You should check if you qualify by applying. The application is free and it takes 10 minutes. Scholarships will be awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. You can sign up at devchat.tv MLE. I'm going to chime in. I've got a couple of things going on. Uh, I think the thing that I've been spending the most time on besides just looking for sponsors for the podcasts is uh, for, I, I, I kind of want to say for obvious reasons, but for, for COVID uh, and coronavirus reasons, <laughs> I've had a lot of people reach out to me about doing remote conferences again. I've been working to pull that together. The one that I'm pulling together right now is uh, the JavaScript conference. I think I'm going to come back around and uh, do a Ruby conference. Ruby Kaigi got postponed and it was mm. supposed to happen in April. And I think what happened really was that they were coming up on a deadline where they had to firmly commit for their venue or something and just not knowing if people were going to even be able to or want to come. They postponed it to September. So I'm looking at putting something together there because I'm seeing conferences cancel all over the place. And so I've been putting those together. So there will be a Ruby one. I just don't know when. So I've been working on that. And then I've got, I've had a project that I've been working on for years that helps manage the podcasts. That's been written in Rails. And so I'm working on getting that kind of into, it's going to be in a private alpha, which means I'm going to move all of our shows onto it. <laughs> and then once I'm comfortable with it working for us, then I'll probably open it up for uh, you know a private beta where people I know or people who apply can get in and use it. And there are a lot of other systems out there like Transistor.fm and uh, I think Fireside is another one that uh, Dan Benjamin put out. The, the problem is, is that a lot of them focus on kind of the lower end of the market. You know, they, they make it really easy for hobbyists to get rolling and their mm. pricing is comparable to that. And my intention is, is to actually like a full soup to nuts deal where it's like, okay, you can schedule your guests, you can schedule your releases, you can bring people in to help you write the show notes, you can actually order any equipment you need, you can hire show notes writers that we've vetted, you can hire editors that we've vetted, you can write. And so it it's kind of a full marketplace so that, you know, and then if you have your own team, you can just invite them in and give them the role. And so it'll just work through the whole thing. And so it, you know, it gets recorded and then it notifies everybody who was on the call. Hey, you know, come in and help us get the show notes done. It notifies the editor that it's ready to be edited. All of the assets are in there. So, th so that's kind of what we're doing. It doesn't have all of these features yet, but it does. It's currently managing our sponsorships, you know. And so, yeah, having a place where people can come in and find common sponsorships or... I also want an option for podcasters to be able to join a package. So for example, um, I'd love to get together with all of the other JavaScript podcasters, right? And then go to some of the bigger companies and say, hey, look, I know you don't want to do 50 small ad buys, but what about one big one? And then I'll manage the 50 small ad buys for you, right? And so just stuff like that is, is kind of what I've been working on. And uh, it's it's been pretty interesting. We we're pretty close to feature complete. I just need to move stuff over to it and start testing it out. So it, it'll be adventures in podcasting for all of our uh, podcasts, uh, all of our hosts. 
So you're going to do a podcast show about building a podcast framework? No. That's, that's, that's recursive. I'm going to do, I'm, I'm building software for podcasters. I am going to be putting together a couple of podcasts about podcasting. One's just going to be kind of the, you know, okay, you know, here's what you need to know about microphones. Here's what you need to know about, you know, RSS. The other one is going to be for marketers. And it's basically going to explain how they can take advantage of setting up sales funnels that include and rely upon podcasts. Well, I think it's, it's a massive growth market. I mean, yeah. I don't know where I'd be without my podcast when I'm sitting on a plane or something uh, or going on a four-hour drive. It really is a hugely productive way to learn yeah. for me personally. Yeah. The other thing that I want to do with it, and, and I'm probably going to work on this next, is none of these podcast apps have mobile apps. So Transistor doesn't have one. Fireside doesn't have one. And honestly, if I am at the airport and I get a call from my team about something that they can't handle, I mean, I don't want to have to pull out my laptop. I want to whip out my phone, see what the issue is and fix it right there if I can. That, that's yeah. the other end of that. And then we'll set things up so that each show has its own GraphQL API or something so that you, know, you can have a mobile app for your podcast or your podcast network based on that API, right? And so it'll manage all of your distribution channels and everything. And that way, I don't have to hassle with all of it. Nice. So that's kind of what we're aiming for. Probably have an MVP right now. And so it's just a matter of getting it all together. But the other thing is, is if I have a GraphQL API, then I can use Gatsby or Gridsome. I think Scully does it too in Angular to actually build my website, right? So now I'm not reliant on WordPress, which is a total pain in the butt. Is that, are you using WordPress at the moment? No. We switched over to 11DJS a while back. I'm kind of wishing that I'd gone with a Gatsby or Gridsome because they have some nicer features for categories, tags, and connecting different data types together. Uh, the way that I've kind of played with Gridsome a little bit as far as uh, pulling it through. And what it does is it actually wraps over the top of your markdown files and, get, and uses GraphQL to query all of your markdown files. And so what you can do then is you can say, I've got a podcast or I've got, a, I've got podcast episodes and they belong to this podcast and they, you know, they have these hosts. And so then it can just go and you, know, you just tell it, okay, go look up the podcast, go get the last five episodes you know, and do the pagination. But you can also go look up on the podcast, all of the hosts. You can look up the release date, you, you know, and so you just do a GraphQL query to get all your data out of it. And then it pulls it all in and, and posts it how you want it. The nice thing about that too then is then we, can, we could uh, basically allow a marketplace for templates, right? And it's like, look, if it's built on Gatsby or if it's built on Gridsome, if it'll use a GraphQL API to build the website, then you, know, then you can put together a, a, a template and then people can actually just order their websites as part of the deal too, right? And so they can either have us host them or they can, you know, spin them off to Netlify or, you know, whatever they want, depending on how much traffic they're getting. And it's just kind of an automatic deal, right? And so you manage everything in one place. That also means that we're probably going to have to have some kind of WordPress integration, you know, where we build a WordPress plugin so that if you update something in PodWrench, which is the name of the tool, then it will, you know, it'll go and tell WordPress, okay, you need to update this post or you need to update this, you know, the title or whatever. And then, you know, that'll reflect into the website. 
But hopefully what we're looking to do is you can either set up your own website or you can have us host it for you or have somebody else host it for you. But however you decide to do that, what we wind up doing is we're going to make it automatic. So if you update it in PodWrench, it's just going to do the right thing everywhere else. I also want to add in social tools, but that's kind of a down the road thing. I want to add in like podcast donation payment kind of thing. We're going to have the payment gateway for sponsorships. You can just invoice them from there and then it'll automatically set up the right thing in the right place so that the podcast ads show up on your website like they're supposed to. And so, yeah, we're just working through some of that. Nice. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And right now what we have is we have the guest scheduling. We have the prep notes that we're currently doing through Google Docs for devchat.tv. That'll, that, that's already done. And so any of the hosts or guests can go in and update that whenever they need to. Eventually, I'd like to have some kind of audit log on that or something or break it up into sections or something. But for right now, it's just one big WYSIWYG editor, which is essentially what Google Docs is anyway. You can upload and download raw files. You can, you can upload the final version and it'll upload it to wherever you're hosting your media. I'd like to add in a feature where we'll just host the media and give you the stats. But yeah, so that that's kind of what we're looking at at this point. And it does all the sponsorship stuff. That stuff's all built. There's a the lot invoicing of isn't built, but the the scheduling and the rest of it is. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. There's a lot of work in podcasting, actually. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, launched one with a buddy of mine. We recorded something like 60 episodes till we eventually kind of became a little bit overwhelmed with uh-huh. all the production work yep. that we just kind of had to take a break for a while. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that I really want to do as much as possible is once you get to a certain point with your audience size and your reach, then we become a good fit because we'll actually go and help you sell sponsorships to cover the costs of our platform and to help you, you know, pay for help with all that stuff, right? So you may still need to be the subject matter expert that writes the show notes. Or at least, um, you know, gives a summary for the show notes and then somebody else can go through and pull all the links out, which is the process that devchat.tv does. I, I generally write about half, more than half of the show notes summaries. But then, you know, whatever links we put into the chat or can come out of the prep doc uh, wind up in the show notes as well. And so, you know, just making that all easy so that at the end of the day, yeah, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're doing a podcast, all you have to do is record it and upload it. And even then, I have another product that I want to put together that where you would actually just open the app and record. So it, it's kind of like, oh, what do they call it? There are a bunch of them out there now. Yeah, uh, there's one Squadcast. called Anchor. No, not Anchor. Squadcast. No. Oh, what's the big dog in this space? Anyway, you, you open the browser and you record into the browser. The problem is, is that the re- they rely on WebRTC, which mm. tends to be flaky sometimes. I've also tried to use some of those. And once you get past like three or four people, they, they usually I wind up with at least one person that can't hear or can't talk. And so I just want to create an actual client app that you install on your machine. And this is something I haven't built yet. I'm probably going to do a Kickstarter for it because I think, I think podcasters will take one look at it and go, yeah, I want that. But you install the, the client app on your computer or on your, even your phone. And then it'll record high quality audio on your wherever you're recording it, and then it'll it'll transmit it to the cloud when you're done. 
And so in this case, what it would do is it would just plug into PodWrench and it would just upload it to PodWrench so that the editor can get at those files. But if you don't want to use PodWrench, you can still use it for your two or three or four person podcast. It'll stick it in Dropbox or AWS or wherever you want it. That's something that I've I've definitely got on the docket because then you get full quality audio. We record these on Zoom and Zoom actually compresses the audio before it sends it over the internet. And so we're already losing audio quality just by virtue of the fact that we're recording with Zoom. And, sure. you know, Zoom isn't made to hand, you know, handle that kind of audio quality, but, you know, that's kind of where it's at. Skype has its issues too. Um, but the other thing is, is then if I have four tracks for all four people and my four-year-old walks in, daddy, daddy, can you, half the time it's daddy, can you, you know, I just went potty, can you help clean me up, right? Right. And, you know, I don't want that in the podcast, right? So it's the editor catches that and it's like, oh, drop Chuck's track, you're right, until he comes back. And so you can clean it all up. You can make it sound really terrific. It sounds like everyone's in the room because it's full fidelity. And then you compress it when you distribute it. And so you only compress it once. You're not losing any more of that information. You compress it to a high enough quality, 128 or 196 kilobits per second. It sounds like you're right there in the room on people's headphones. So anyway, I've gone way off on my stuff, but that that's what we're looking at. Um, and if I can get those launched before podcast movement in August, I will be a happy guy because then I can just show up and I can, I, I, I'm thinking I can sell it all day long. I think you're right. Having a, a fully integrated system is going to save a lot of time. Yeah. The other thing is though, is that most podcasters, and I'm one, I mean, I run a team that does this stuff and it's, it's a lot of work and sometimes it's a pain in the neck, right? Because it's like, oh, this didn't get communicated one way or the other. Uh, I have to worry about whether or not every step's getting done. And so if I have a system where I can just show up and record, it's a place where everybody on my team can just check in. And then if something is you know, coming in late or not happening right or things like that, then mm-hmm. I can just get notified by the system, right? So then I only stress out if I have to, right? And my team at this point is pretty reliable, so I don't stress a ton about it anyway. But you know, then it's just, hey, this is going to be late, right? And if it's going to be late on something that I can just jump in and fix in two minutes, right? Oh, I got to write up, I got to fix the show notes on this or something, right? You know, great. If it turns out that, you know, oh, well, it didn't get edited on time. And I'm like, hey, editor, what's going on? And they're like, I have coronavirus. Then, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm like, ah, oh, gotcha. You know, you, you go sleep, I'll edit it, right? Because I can if I have to. And so, so it just kind of keeps us on top of that whole process. And it'll also allow me to notify people when I have openings for sponsorships and send them an invoice and it just gets paid. And then I know it was paid and I don't have to go back to the other system and put it in and say, okay, this got paid, right? And so it, mm-hmm. just, it just does all that stuff. So nice. that's what we're looking at. You mentioned the the JavaScript remote conference. I really need to do that. Do you know what's been going on with JavaScript? I mean, I can't even read ES6. Compared to how Ruby's <laughs> changed over the last 10 years, I look oh. at, I mean, I've, I, 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 like I said, I've kind of got this little React thing for work that I was looking at. I mean, it's not what I'm working on, but the code's there, so I'm going to read it, right? I was just looking at it going, what is going on? You know, what's, what's happened to this language? Ruby is pretty much... So just to, just to um, as a fair comparison, right? I'm not bashing on JavaScript, fair comparison. I thought, I'm going to look at some Ruby code from 10 years ago. So I had a look through 
the wider Lucky Stiff code archive, and he mm-hmm. stopped releasing in 2009, right? So that's pretty right. fair apples for apples. And if you load up those projects and you look through, you say, yeah, it's kind of Ruby 1.8 mostly, but you could, it looks like mm-hmm. Ruby. When you load up the, you know, like I said, the React stuff now, I don't even, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I do not have time to explain this. It's, it's super um, different. I don't, I don't want to explain it. I just, it's just an observation. You know, I'm just kind of really grateful that Ruby's been so stable. Yeah, I mean, Ruby benefited in a lot of ways. And I've, I've only been in since 1.8.234 or something like that. Oh, wow. So Ruby's benefited from, you know, some of the other languages figuring out some of this stuff. And Matt's has a pretty cohesive idea of what Ruby should be. I mean, sometimes they add features and I'm just going, we don't need that in Ruby. If you need that, go use something else, right? But for the most part, it, it kind of all falls into the same aesthetic and people follow it. The problem that we ran into with JavaScript is that A, they're trying to be fully backward compatible all the way back to 1999 or whatever. The new, the new features, you have to have a modern browser to use them or mm-hmm. polyfill them. But anything you wrote in, in the old style all the way back to the beginning... They want that to still generally work. That's what I'm mm. saying by backward compatible, right? So, you know, the code you're writing now, it may not work on older browsers, but the code you wrote for the older browsers should generally work now. Not, not 100%, but generally. And so they're trying to maintain that as much as possible. The other issue is, is that they tried to modernize the language for ES4, and that kind of slid off into the ocean. They, they came out with ES5, and we had ES5 forever. And so the ES6... Thing is essentially an attempt to modernize the language. The problem that I see is that there are a lot of agendas. It's um, TC39 is managed by, a, by committee, which is good and bad because you get a lot of good ideas, you get a lot of bad ideas. And you know, in some cases, if, if somebody really wants to push something through, they, they can get it close. But, but yeah, so it's changed a lot because they're trying to make it more modern. I mean, in some ways, they've made it a lot better. And in other ways, they've made it a little bit harder. And so it really just comes down to, you know, where all that comes down. As we record this, if you're looking for a little bit of this conversation from people that do JavaScript, listen to next week's JavaScript Jabber episode, where we talk about the evolution of JavaScript. And we're talking specifically about this stuff. But yeah, I, I have mixed opinions about the direction that JavaScript has gone in. They've, they've definitely been trying to solve some of the issues that people run into and make those easier to deal with or have a clean syntax around it. But you know, in some ways, I think they've done fine. And in other ways, I think they've failed. The other thing is, is they've also adopted certain standards into the ES6 specification that I think were fine as library add-ons. Things like promises. You know, promises have been and could always have been added in with a library because essentially what you do is you edit the prototype chain and you add the promises functions to it. Async await, which handles kind of the same problem. I think that had to be a language feature because it actually required some syntax magic. Anyway, I'm in favor though of having a really slim core to the language. That's why I have issues with some of the things they've tried to add to Ruby as well is because I'm like, we really don't need that in the core. In fact, some of the things in the standard library, I don't think we need in the standard library. But um, at the end of the day, yeah, that's, um, that, that's kind of the, the deal. So I generally agree with you, 
but I, th- I think there are good reasons for some of the stuff that you're seeing that you're kind of going, mm. I mean, we're somewhat a little bit off topic. I think it's important to distinguish that these are two very different languages yes. with extremely different philosophies at their core, right? Because yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, JavaScript is, you know, a sort of event-based reactionary language that's really imperative, right? And all of these features are ways of bringing in, you know, okay, well, we would like to have some OOP stuff. So let's let's mm-hmm. have that in the language, right? Like we yeah. would like to have some functional stuff. Let's have that in the language. JavaScript's yeah. trying to adapt to the modern world. They have they had a different route. Ruby came out of the box with that stuff. Like, so we yeah. haven't had to see as much evolution yet. Yeah, absolutely. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Well, I have a hard stop, so I'm going to push us to picks. But yeah, I definitely recommend you go check out The Evolution of JavaScript. Dan Shapiro kind of pushed that one together and we had a terrific conversation about it. And it's interesting too, because everybody has kind of a different take on what it means. So another interesting couple of ones to go look at if you're interested in it. Um, I did two interviews with Douglas Crockford, JavaScript, The Good Parts, and How JavaScript Works are his books. We talk about some of this stuff too. So, But yeah, let's do picks. Uh, Luke, what are your picks? My pick is, and it's featured on Ruby Rogues before, Ruby Object Mapping. This is an alternative to uh, ORM-based data stores. I was using a gem called Data Mapper, which has been mm-hmm. abandoned. The new project by, I think, pretty much the same team is Ruby Object Mapper. I'm using it for a uh, high-performance database experiment in, in the medical industry. Do you like it? I assume you're recommending it because you like it. It does what I want it to do. It's very opinionated. One of the essays linked from the site is called pretty much uh, Object Relation Mapping is the Vietnam of uh, computer science, so it's gonna it's gonna divide opinion. Mm. <laughs> All right, interesting. John, what are your picks? So I've been a long time listener of, I guess, the Freelancers podcast. I think at one time uh-huh. it was called the Ruby Freelancers podcast. Back yep, when, when it started, listen to it. And way back when there was some episode, and I've been trying to look for it this whole entire episode, and I haven't found it yet. But way back when there was some episode where they were talking about contracts. And someone brought up a contract that was, you know, uh, like a simpler contract, more in like plain language. And I, this past week, I was totally in contract land. And that is like, that is the core contract of my company. We, we, I don't know, massage it and pull and pull in different ways and, mm-hmm. and turn it into a thing. But uh, I was just using that and I was thinking about how awesome it was that I, I mean, but really I'm recommending the whole show. Because it, I learned a ton of things from listening to that podcast over time. I, I haven't listened to every episode. There's like 300 episodes, but I think I listened to like the first hundred or so before I took a break and things like that. So, and then I came back after a while. I think I think a couple of years ago there was a panelist on, which is the one that convinced me that I should uh, always fix bid everything. 
So I have learned a lot of things from that show. And so I'm definitely picking the Ruby Freelancers podcast. Yeah, now it's the Freelancer show. Um, That's what I mean. My bad. Yep. Nope, it's all good. But yeah, just go to devchat.tv slash freelancers and you'll find it. The panel has changed a couple of times, most recently around the beginning of the year. So just kind of keep that in your head. But yeah, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. The first pick I have is I'm kind of a sucker for the journal style notebooks. And I bought one on Amazon a few years ago. It's uh, got the Triforce. It's got Zelda artwork on it. I, I really love it. This is the one that I kind of write all of my deep thoughts in. I don't know. I, 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 you could draw some kind of connection in your head there if you want. But I, I usually have one for kind of my deep thoughts. One for like if I'm reading scriptures or you know at church or things like that. And then I've got another one that... I kind of use for more business stuff. And it's mostly just so that I can find what I'm looking for without going, uh, no, 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 right. Wrong topic, wrong topic, wrong topic. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, pick that because I'm, I'm really loving it. Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much all I've got to pick this week. Well, it's good to hear what everyone's working on. John, I might beg you to come on uh, React Native Radio. Um, Talk about my, my interesting journey. Maybe. I also need panelists. So if you know anybody, let me know. But yeah, let's go ahead and wrap up. We'll have another one later. Max out, everybody. Take care. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.